You're listening to a podcast from the Royal Statistical Society. As well as being a professional body for statisticians, the RSS is a renowned, world-leading organization promoting the importance of statistics and data in society. With these podcasts, we will bring you regular interviews, public talks, and insights. You will get the inside track on how data are used and abused and how to separate the signal from the noise. So I've reported on, on a really wide range of um, health stories and, and outbreaks in particular. Um, I had actually only been uh, in the health reporter role uh, for a few months when the Ebola outbreak uh, started and it sort of changed everything. In fact, the BBC had only had a global health correspondent role um, six months before it started. I was the first one. Um, and yeah, I don't have a science background, despite getting that very lovely award. I felt a bit uh, bad about that, but it was very nice to receive it. Uh, um, I don't have a science background. I don't even have a medical background. Um, but I have a real interest in um, people <laughs> and also health systems and also kind of how the developing world um, has to deal with things differently to how we do over here in terms of in terms of outbreaks. Um, so with the Ebola outbreak, I'm sure you'll remember it was horrific, and nobody really saw what was coming, um, and it ended up being, uh, as the World Health Organization described it, uh, the worst health emergency of modern times. Uh, more than 28 and a half thousand people were infected and uh, more than uh, 11,300 people died. And between 2014 and 2016, I made about sort of 10 trips to Sierra Leone and Guinea. Another colleague of mine was doing um, Liberia much more. Uh, and I was there last in uh, July last year because I really wanted to follow up and continue to follow up with um, some of the people we'd met at the height of the outbreak. So we weren't just showing the kind of the horror of it all, we actually followed through on people's stories. Um, and what I saw there, uh, the desperation, the fear, um, the bravery, uh, the inequality of care, um, all of it really had a, a very profound effect on me, as it did, of course, for everyone involved in the outbreak, and particularly those who lived in these uh, areas and, and couldn't get on a plane and, and go back home to a place that was completely safe. Um, and of course we see that all around the world today there's a huge cholera outbreak going on in Yemen and I think anybody dealing with that or even watching it from afar can't help but be uh, affected by what they're seeing um, but Ebola sparked a, a fear globally that I have never known um, both in the affected countries in West Africa and also in places further afield like here I remember when I got back from um, a few of my deployments, there were a couple of occasions where I was uninvited uh, to a, a few events. And on one hand, you know, I could understand the fear around it, but on another, it was really frustrating because I really tried to make my reporting really focus on the facts about Ebola. And if you really understood the facts about Ebola, you certainly wouldn't be scared sitting here in the UK, uh, you know, at a dinner party. Um, but, and also, of course, you know, clearly, you know, we have health system in place here that as and when it, it did come here, because people were infected and were evacuated, it, it didn't, wasn't passed on to anybody else, and it was dealt with very quickly, and no British person died of Ebola. Um, but <laughs> international headlines like that <laughs> uh, didn't help. Uh, ISIS, is Ebola the ISIS uh, of biological agents? Uh, no.
It's not. <laughs> um, uh, and as you all know, it's, um, Ebola is actually, in theory, of very straightforward to treat. You isolate the person who's infected. Um, you treat them quickly, and if you do treat them quickly, they have a very good chance of surviving, especially if they were quite fit and healthy in the first place. But of course, where this happened was a poor area. Uh, it was um, people weren't very well to begin with, and they didn't have any of the equipment they needed to, to deal with it. It started on the border of three countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, um, and they had very poor uh, access to any sort of health uh, care, and they were utterly uh, unprepared. Um, so I'm going to show you a few videos and a few photos um, from my trips over those two years. And this was from my first trip. It was Kolobengu village, uh, and this was in Gekadu, and Gekadu is where it all started. And um, again, I, I, I want to just talk about the fear because I walked into this village, and I have, I just haven't felt such palpable fear. <laughs> it, you saw it on people's faces, um, fear and distrust. Actually, I went with medics from MSF and WHO, um, not just medics, there were also kind of counsellors and um, people from, you know, from uh, Guinea who had gone in uh, to, to speak to these people. But the first time they'd gone in, um, they were chased out. Um, some of them were attacked because many people in this village didn't believe that um, Ebola was real. They thought, some thought that the government had made it up to try and get money um, from the international community. Um, and we were finally allowed in, and I went with the medics, when um, they actually went in one person and explained what they were doing, why they were coming in, and what they wanted to do. They made an agreement, and then on, arranged, on an arranged date, they went in and um, gathered the community um, around and sat with them and uh, explained, you know, what is Ebola, what it isn't. Um, they invited somebody there from the uh, community from another part of Gekadu who had been infected, who had been treated, and who was alive and well. And he was able to speak to them as well. So um, that was really uh, important. Um, so when we went into that village afterwards, uh, slowly people started bringing sick people out of their homes. And that day, they took, they took back to the treatment center um, seven people who were clearly infected with Ebola. Um, despite being around for decades, Ebola, uh, yet again, <laughs> caught the world completely uh, unawares, unprepared. We, don't, we didn't have a vaccine, we didn't have treatments. Um, you know, people were just given uh, fluids, paracetamol, um, and were kept away from, uh, from others. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so the world was very slow to act, you know, even though there have been a number of outbreaks. And this next video is the story of Francis Samuka. Uh, he, I met him in Sierra Leone in Freetown, and this was at the height of the outbreak, when um, treatment centres that had started opening, there were a number of treatment centres actually across uh, the three worst affected countries, uh, they had opened up and many of them were completely overwhelmed. And, and this report was from that time. Francis Samuka has been sick for four days. His bloodshot eyes, a classic sign of Ebola. His family have brought him to this treatment centre, but it's full 
so Francis is told to go home, putting his family and his community at risk. And then we gone all the way to different hospitals, there is no treatment. So what is the government doing for us? We are dying, people are dying. What is the government doing for us? We don't know. Francis's family is now potentially in grave danger. They had nothing to protect themselves. You just press it into your hands and wash. And five gloves for, for all of you. Ebola is passed through close contact with infected people. Their sweats and other body fluids carry the virus. The family are leaving now. They're not sure where they're going to go to yet. They are completely and utterly bewildered. They've been told that a health worker will come and see them, will come and assess them in their house, but they are frankly very skeptical of that. They are afraid and they are heading towards a very uncertain future. Medics here are having to turn people away every single day. It's a heartbreaking choice. Of course, for a medical staff, it's not easy to say a person, I'm sorry, we cannot admit you. But uh, speaking about Ebola, the safety of uh, all national and international staff is the first priority that we have to think uh, about uh, the facility. It may not look like much, and staff have to work in extremely difficult conditions, but these centres are saving lives. Every day, medics carefully handle toxic blood samples. It's painstaking work. In the midst of all this frustration and sadness, a ray of hope. Three girls have been given supportive treatment here, and they've recovered. Across town in the city's main cemetery, burial teams scramble over fresh graves. Hundreds of victims have been laid to rest here. One of the latest is a man found dead on the street. No one even knows his name. Fifteen bodies have been buried here today alone. Many of the graves are unmarked, but some, as you can see, are marked by simple palm tree leaves. Burial teams here are utterly overwhelmed, but there are warnings that things are about to get much, much worse. Cases in Sierra Leone are rocketing. More than 120 deaths were recorded yesterday alone, making it one of the deadliest days of this outbreak so far. Tonight, there's yet another death. Francis's family called us this evening to tell us he has passed away. Tulip Mazumdar, BBC News, Freetown. Um... That was going on throughout the country and um, throughout all three countries, and we were there for to see sort of the whole story unfold um, with Francis and his family. I was actually live on air um, doing a report when my producer sort of said in my ear, well, I think he might have even put it on my piece of paper, um, Francis has died. And... Um, yeah, that, that report for me just was a, you know, it was one man's story, but that we heard so many stories like that, that they went to uh, treatment centres and they were turned away and then, and then they died. And as, as you saw there, um, the, that car was full of six people <laughs> and Francis had Ebola. And I went back a year later to meet that family again and um, two others in that car, two of the brothers uh, had 
consequently also caught Ebola and had also uh, passed away. Um, but uh, Lucinda, who was the lady you saw shouting, what's the government doing for us? I went to go and see her a year later. Um, she was actually very smiley when I saw her. But she had had a really, clearly a really uh, tough time. So she described how um, Francis's parents, so her parents, um, two of his children, his wife, they all died of Ebola. And, um, and she also caught Ebola. And she was actually zipped up in a body bag because they thought she was dead. Um, but she, well, they, they started to, but then she sort of, she sort of, came round and they realised that she wasn't dead and that and actually she pulled through. Um, incredible story and an incredible woman. She now, or at that time, she was running a survivors group because um, a lot of the survivors had a lot of stigma. They had a lot of health problems afterwards. And so she set up a group in her community um, to help them and to kind of help herself as well. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a sad story, and a lot of this was really terrible. But there were so many stories, um, like I said at the beginning, of resilience and bravery, and um, what people did to help their neighbours, and what these communities did to end the outbreak. And um, I'll just tell you about a couple of the other people we met and that we did reports on as well, um, because it, it was really important that we didn't just cover the horror, that we covered the human stories and the people helping. And this is Adele. She worked at the um, first MSF treatment centre in Gekadu. Um, I met her in, in that same trip in July 2014, but she'd been at that centre since April. Uh, and, she, and she left when um, it, it closed uh, almost two years later. And she just, you know, she would just say the small things, I mean, the big things, but in her view, the small things she would do um, to comfort people kind of in their, in their last um, hours and, and minutes. Um, there were also these incredible women I met. Um, Haja, I mean, this is what you saw, 19 members of her family. I mean, this wasn't uncommon. Um, Haja lost 19 members of her family. Um, she went to a local orphanage. And because she had... Uh, recovered from Ebola, she was able to look after um, children who had come from households where somebody had had Ebola, and because they were in quarantine, she was able to go into quarantine with them and, and look after them, and she, she told me all about that, and Bilikisu, um, again, she lost 17 members of her family, um, she was infected, but within weeks of recovering, she signed up to work at an Ebola treatment centre, um, so these are also really important stories, I think, to hear from, from what was a really difficult uh, environment. Um, the next video I want to show you looks um, at the community efforts to end the outbreak. Um, people could keep themselves safe by not touching others. There was something called the Ebola handshake. Um, you couldn't, so there was a nobody, no contact, nobody contact rule. So um, over that time, nobody was supposed to be allowed to touch each other. Um, so when we went, we didn't even, you know, we didn't touch members of our team. Um, but by kind of avoiding body contact, by using soap and disinfectant, by knowing what to do if somebody became sick, um, the community themselves could, could, could fight and, and win against Ebola, which is what eventually happened. Um, but it was important, and they found this out eventually, that it was the community delivering those messages to, to, to the community. When it was 
people from outside doing it. Again, the trust wasn't there and people didn't listen as much. So um, this is, these are the sorts of efforts that happened and this is what helped end the outbreak. These volunteers are on a mission to end the Ebola outbreak. Armed only with facts and soap. Then we explained to her about this virus, this uh, Ebola. Then we show her how to wash hands, how to do the prevention of not getting the virus. There are two key things that are now needed to bring this outbreak under control, according to the World Health Organization. One, more doctors and nurses on the ground here. The other, though, is this, community action, getting volunteers to go into villages like this one and giving them very basic information on how to keep themselves safe. Church, church. And it seems this tactic is working. No one has been infected in this village so far. If you don't use the people in the community, you will not have massive impact. Because the people, one, they know their community, they know their people, they know the approaches that they should take. We are just here to empower them. And we think with them, they can create massive impact. There may not be any cases here so far, but the virus has touched almost everyone in this community. How will they start out? The village nurse, Joyce, has lost three of her friends to Ebola. All were also health workers. Well, it's really painful. It's really painful. At times, I make up my mind I should not go out to work, but I've been signed for it. So, I'll go. So, yeah, Joyce was... Um Joyce was another incredible woman that really looked after her community. I, I went back to that um, hilltop village um, a few months later, and I've followed it a few, a few times since then. There were some infections there. Um, one boy lost um, several members of his family, his entire family, um, but, it, but it was restricted to just a couple of households. Um, and actually, towards the end of the outbreak, when the community and the authorities really knew what to do. It was much more organised. So you would have uh, um, one household that was just sort of cordoned off with orange, uh, an orange fence, and they would be passed food parcels every day, so they wouldn't need to leave their homes. And that's when things really started um, coming under control. Um, I've got one last video to play, and that's... Um, hopefully much more relevant to um, some of the work that's done here, and it's about data gathering. Um, so how do you gather data in the middle of this chaos when you can't, you, can't, you know, I mean, this is how you're dressed. <laughs> um, you know, holding a pen is hard. Writing down patients' details is hard. Keeping hold of that paperwork that you've done um, uh, is difficult. So um, there were a lot... You know, like I've said, there was a lot of, 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 of fear and devastation at that time, but there were also many solutions and things that we learned that came out of that outbreak. And um, this was one of the innovations that uh, will hopefully be used in, in future outbreaks uh, as well. A high-tech tablet device in a very low-tech setting. For almost a year now, medics have been fighting Ebola with the most basic resources. Health workers can't bring anything out of high-risk zones, including patient records, because of the risk of contamination, so they shout crucial medical notes to colleagues. Taking uh, the caretaker information uh, on this patient, I was writing it down with my ballpoint pen on wet paper. 
and uh, the pen stopped working, the paper became illegible. The waterproof tablet is encased in a specially designed Ebola-proof cover, which means it can be dropped into chlorine to be sterilized. It uses minimal energy and allows medics to quickly store vital patient data, which they say can help save lives. Wearing this moon suit, you're wearing this really uh, heavy costume to, to protect you from Ebola. So every minute in there is precious. And if people are spending out of the one hour they have inside there, 10 minutes shouting information over the fence, those are 10 minutes they could be using helping patients. Developers here at Google in London have teamed up with medical charity MSF to come up with the device. There are three being used in Sierra Leone at the moment with plans to send more. Everything in the centers needs to be sterilized with 0.5% chlorine. It's quite corrosive. As well as you can't have anything like sharp edges on them. So everything you can see here is quite smooth. Uh, and you, when you handle that in your protective gear, you know that it won't catch or tear the gear you're wearing. We're hoping with this, you can now capture information very quickly, save time, and then also analyze and understand more about Ebola in the future. As the current outbreak wanes in West Africa, it's hoped this type of technology, which was developed in the midst of a crisis, will be ready to use when the next emergency hits. Tulip Mazumdar, BBC News. So yeah, so a lot, a lot was, we were able to get a lot of information and learn a lot from the outbreak and a lot needed to be learned because the world was slow um, in, in realising how big it was and then actually dealing with it. And again, having been back to Sierra Leone last year, I went back to some of the hospitals uh, and saw, um, you know, they have isolation units now, which they never had before. Um, there, some, some, of the health, some of the health facilities, particularly in cities, um, have really improved because the country got a lot of uh, money and that money has been invested for more sort of long-term solutions. Um, so there has been uh, a lot of good that has come out of what was a, a really uh, difficult time and especially for the people um, themselves of Sierra Leone and Guinea and uh, Liberia um, before. They, I mean, they lost about 500 health workers to Ebola and they couldn't have afforded to lose one. But I, I know of programs, particularly in Sierra Leone, where they are training um, and giving bursaries to lots of young people to try and get them trained up so that if and when this happens again, because sadly it will, whether it's Ebola or something else, they'll be much better prepared to deal with it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, Nathan, and uh, thank you for coming. So I'll be talking a bit about um, work that we've been doing um, in the Department of in Infectious Disease Epidemiologies. I was in, uh, in, in Imperial, um, <coughs> um, trying to mitigate emerging disease and the role of statistical modeling uh, in informing public health uh, measures. Um, so yeah, as I said, I'm presenting it, but it's a work of um, a number of people in, in this team. And, uh, and so I'd, I'll put some picture of them later so you can see them as well. Um, so in, in this talk, I'll talk a bit about the context, why uh, the work we're doing is important, but I think after the, after the talk we just seen, this is pretty 
straightforward, really. Uh, I'll talk a bit about the work modeling and how it can be used in terms of knowledge integration uh, then, and, and how this in turn can be used for, uh, to assist public health response. And, and I'll talk about various emerging uh, viruses. Uh, a lot of the talk will be focused on, on Ebola, actually, so quite the same subject. Um, so in terms of the context, why, why is it uh, important? Well, we, we've seen why it is important, but uh, just to remind you as well, um, pandemic um, can have a huge impact on human population. If you think uh, historical sort of example, uh, think of the bubonic plague, it is thought to have killed about a third of the population in, in Europe uh, during medieval time. Uh, a more recent example, influenza virus, uh, 1918 pandemic, uh, affected about a third of the world population and, and is said to have killed uh, more people in 24 weeks uh, than HIV in, in 24 years. So you, you can see the the fast-paced as well of those virus, virus can, can, can spread extremely quickly and have a huge impact on, on human population. So Ebola was obviously a, a tragic example in, in, in recent time. Um, so I'll, I'll step back a bit because in order to understand the sort of modeling work we are doing, uh, it's important to um, understand as well the dynamic of the disease. In fact, in order to um, control any sort of disease, it would be important to understand the dynamic of the disease. Um, so how do you go from uh, an outbreak to sort of emerging diseases? Um, so I don't have a pointer, no? So if you look at, um, th so this is an example of a, a zoonotic disease and, uh, and typically what you see in, in, in wildlife is, is sort of fluctuation of, um, so if you can see the, the mouse here, you, you can see typically fluctuation over time. And uh, that can be due because initially most of the animals are um, susceptible to the disease, they are naive, so a lot of them get infected. And once all the animals are infected, presumably they are either, say, dead or immune, uh, then there is no more individual to be infected. So the number of new cases is then decreasing. So you see this decrease over there. Uh, once new individuals are born, they are naive to the disease, so they can become infected. Then uh, once it's reached a certain threshold, a certain number of individuals are naive, then, then uh, the outbreak will increase again. So that's the phase you see again here, and it keeps on going like that. You see this kind of pattern for numerous reasons. That's one of the explanations. It could be due to climate as well, or other factors. But a lot of the time, you see fluctuation in, in the wildlife reservoir. And um, quite often, what you see then is a spillover from the wildlife to, um, to say, domestic animal. And what you see then is what, what people call amplification. So this uh, very large increase in number of cases. There's mainly two reasons for that. The, um, Domestic animal population typically will be naive to those kind of uh, pathogen, and, and also they live in much higher density, much more individual and in very close space. And then the same process is really can happen a spillover to the human population, and it can either come from domestic animal or from, from the wildlife, and you see again amplification in, in the human population. So if you think of, of, of the example of Ebola, then there is a 
some variation in wildlife and then it, it enters the human population and then spread among the human and make a very large outbreak. Uh, so why is it important to understand those kind of uh, dynamic? It's because then you can act on it. If you, if you understand what's happening in the wildlife, you know like the risk is increasing during certain time. Uh, you can have then, if you have this couple with sort of early detection, that means that you can implement control measure quicker and uh, curb the spread of the disease earlier, which means that you uh, get this sort of benefit of the control to either animal population or human population. It, it sounds fairly straightforward, but understanding those dynamics are actually fairly complex, and, and there is a lot of issue between um, trying to have a, a good surveillance system and the logistic of implementing control measures. All the steps are quite difficult, actually, when you go down to it. So in, in this sort of context, uh, the public health actors, so that there would be Ministry of Health or public health agency like WHO, they must be really prepared, uh, so that rely a lot on surveillance system. They, they must uh, be able to respond rapidly to a threat and, and then reassess the situation and change their response according to the evolving context. And uh, that's quite difficult, but in a sense, modeling uh, here, so statistical modeling can help um, in, in each, really each of the steps by integrating various sources of information and, and making sense of the situation and providing meaningful sort of recommendation for control. Um, so the, the second part of the talk now is, is going to go around example for preparedness, uh, rapid response and monitoring and evaluating threats. So I'll, I'll, I'll draw on a couple of examples that the department has been working on uh, to illustrate like, how it can be used. So in terms of preparedness, um, yeah, I, I thought to first talk a bit about the uh, Zika uh, epidemic that affected Latin America and, uh, and about scenario modeling. So that's where um, you want to know what's, what is likely to happen in the future, but you have, a, you have very limited knowledge about uh, what the situation is. And so that, that, that work was done uh, quite early on uh, in, during the outbreak in Latin America. And so there were limited knowledge and, and a lot of question about wh what are we looking at? What is gonna happen in two years, in five years, in 10 years time? What should we do about it? So in, in a sense, that's, that's related to preparedness. Um, so that's mostly the work of uh, Neil Ferguson, the head of our department. So he set up a, uh, what you would call a stochastic patch model. The important thing is it, it's a model where there is uh, a number of regions that can be modeled, and in each of those regions, you model the human population. Uh, you also model the mosquito population, and then the transmission between mosquitoes and humans. Uh, an important part of this sort of model is they need to be structure. I mean, I just would like, I'm sure you know all about it, but. Uh, Zika is particularly dangerous for, uh, for unborn children. So uh, in a sense, it's good to track at which sort of age do you become infected because the risk is really much higher for women of uh, childbearing age. Um, so I'll, I'll just go straight to the uh, sort of conclusion to see what sort of conclusion you can take out of a model like that. Um, so what you typically see, um, so in this axis, in this axis is a weekly number of new <coughs> infections over time in, in year. And so what you, what, 
what you can Im immediately see is that you, you expect to see a very large outbreak initially, but that is really lasting only a couple of years. And that's when, in the same cycle that I was showing you before, everybody is naive to the virus, they all get infected. But, but once almost all the population is infected, then, then the virus is not really circulating very much. So you see this phase where nothing much is happening. During this time, most of the people are uh, immune to the virus. And then as new people are born and are naive to the disease, uh, you wait a decade or more, and then we'd expect to see another outbreak. Um, so there would be some heterogeneity into the spatial spread, so it, it could spread over a period of two years in places, or uh, overall, if you, if you think of 20 regions, like say Latin America, then maybe a five-year uh, large outbreak. But then basically you don't see very much, uh, which, which is important in terms of like what you are gonna do about it in, in the sense that, um, for example, the discussion around vaccination, uh, if, you, if you are able to develop a vaccine within six months, then maybe it's useful. If it's gonna take five years to develop the vaccine, then you can imagine that you're gonna be in a very difficult situation where um, there is not really much disease incidence anymore. So it's gonna be quite difficult as well to test whether your vaccine is working because uh, you don't see that many cases. So um, sometimes that makes a, a recommendation quite difficult. Uh, another thing that can be done with those type of model is uh, try a sort of what if scenario, what if uh, we were implementing intervention. So um, in this red curve, which is basically showing the same, but in, in the uh, scenario where there would be vector control implemented. And what you see is what the first striking thing is, is not so different. Uh, the second thing is the first outbreak is a bit lower than uh, in, in the case with no intervention. However, you can notice that the outbreak lasts longer and the next outbreak comes earlier. That's because less people are infected, but they're infected over a longer period of time, which is really problematic in the case of Zika. So the, the, the main public health sort of um, response from ministry was to say, well, maybe you should delay pregnancy. If you're delaying pregnancy for a year or two, that's one thing. If you're telling the population to delay for more than five years, then that's not really manageable. So, so in a sense, we're in a very difficult situation where uh, if you do vector control, yes, it's fine. If you were able to kill all the mosquitoes, that's all right. But, but typically, you're not really able to do that. And in a sort of reasonable scenario, actually, you're more likely to uh, delay the end of the uh, large epidemic, which is, which is quite problematic. So it's in that sense that modeling can sort of, we have limited knowledge, but we can put that all together and say, well, given our current state of knowledge, can we say something about control? In this case, sadly enough, like Zika is, uh, is, is, is not very controllable, to be honest, that, that was the conclusion there. Um, second, uh, a second e example uh, linked to uh, preparedness is uh, and I took an example around Ebola and uh, surveillance and advocacy planning. So um, I'll, I'll just give a brief outline of um, how do you estimate transmissibility. Um, so a, a quantity that is really important in, in epidemiology is, is called the basic reproduction number and it's noted typically R0 and it's defined as an average number of secondary cases generated by an index case. 
Um, so you can imagine the situation where you have one case here, in the next generation is infected two, uh, those two person then go on and infect two also, and etc. Uh, so you can see here the reproduction number is two. Um, if the reproduction number is lower than one, then in each generation there is less and less cases, so the disease is, is under control. So really uh, the main aim of the control is to bring this reproduction number below one. <coughs> um, you can read, you can listen a bit about more in, in the movie Contagion, actually, it's quite, it's quite a popular concept, really. Um, those kind of system, you, you'd expect that if you were able to plot the incidence over time, you, you end up with some kind of what's called exponential growth, so it looks like that, it's just increasing very quickly. So, so you can imagine that in terms of measuring it, it's actually fairly easy if, well, if, if you know the number of cases <coughs> over time, um, so that would be um, an incidence curve over time, so this type of curve here. And, and if you know as well, like how long it takes for one person to infect another, then that's enough information to, uh, to estimate the reproduction number. So in, in this small example, you've got one person infected here. It takes, um, say, two and a 2.1 day to, uh, to have one generation, so that's one generation, which is called sometimes a serial interval. And, and you can see that then this one infected two person there, yeah? So uh, that means the reproduction number is two. So with these two pieces of information, you're able to uh, um, estimate a reproduction number, which is, which is quite neat. Um, you can see that it's really important to have a good information on this serial interval. Say the serial interval was much larger, then this one person would have infected a lot more people. Yeah? And since the reproduction number would be around five here. So anyway, it's to say that uh, you need some information, but not a massive amount of information to sort of estimate the transmissibility initially. And the same can be done over time. So you have the equivalent concept of effective reproduction number, which is the same con concept, the same quantity, but estimate at, at, at any time t of the outbreak. Um, I'm just putting that on because you can imagine those kind of exponential growth process, they don't, they don't go on forever. I mean, there is a, for one thing, there is a limited number of humans in the planet, so I mean, at some point it would stop. Um, the other thing, luckily, is control can be implemented. Uh, therefore, you can not only measure the impact of the control, but see in to what extent your reproduction number is below uh, the threshold of one, which is what you want to achieve, really. Um, so during the Ebola outbreak, we did, uh, we did this kind of exercise on a, a sort of weekly basis, really. Um, initially, we were asked by WHO to uh, provide some support uh, in September 2014, actually. And, and so the first thing we did was calculate this basic reproduction number. So uh, this is like nine months after the epidemic, but there weren't much control uh, implemented at that time, to be honest. So it, it's fair to say that the, uh, the epidemic was growing exponentially, to be honest. Um, we, we found that this basic reproduction number was around two, which is very fast, and, but it was quite similar to previous outbreak, which was quite important because at the time people were already s saying th things like the, the virus is, is, the outbreak was much larger than any outbreak we had ever seen by this stage. And, and, and there were suggestions that maybe the virus was different. 
And, but, but in fact, based on this sort of analysis, at least we could tell the transmissibility wasn't different from previous outbreak. Just the scale of it was different. We had waited way too long to intervene, but, but the virus was the same. There were nothing, nothing really different about it. Well, not, nothing fundamentally different. Anyway. Um, the other thing you can do once you've got this sort of estimation is say, if the situation remains the same, can we make some prediction what's gonna happen? And, and you can do that fairly easily with the caveat that you're really saying is a prediction if the situation remains the same as it is now. And, and, and so that allows you to make some sort of prediction here. So you see the estimation was done with the data around here and we, can, we could sort of predict what would happen in the coming weeks. And uh, so you don't want to make prediction for too long because it wouldn't be realistic with a couple of weeks. And, and this was helpful in uh, sort of uh, telling the general community, I mean everybody, but also the, the ministries and, and um, international health agency to say, well, if, if nothing is done, that's where we are heading. So maybe something should be done, you know, because that's, that's quite dramatic. Actually, it kept on going that, that way for uh, almost a month in Sierra Leone, to be honest. Um, and so we kept on doing those kind of uh, exercise, and as it says here in December 14, March 15, I'll just show the graph. And this is more to uh, evaluate the situation and just to see what the control measures are doing. So um, you can see in the first graph the reproduction number over time, so from say June until December, and, and you see that is the dotted line is one, so it's, it's closing in on one. So we are, we are the control measures are being effective, but so it's slowing down, but it's not really under control. Um, by the time we were in March, then there were some indications that uh, the reproduction number, the effective one was under one, so there were some good controls there. And, and we could still do some kind of prediction. If you maintain the control that it is, so that's where the key part is. You, you, you can't relax, really. You need to maintain the control that it is, then, then maybe we can start talking about when, when extinction of the virus would, would occur. And, and that can help uh, a lot with uh, planning, planning the measure and, and reinforcing the message that this is not over. We need to keep the, uh, the pressure on. Um, then I'll talk a bit about rapid response, and that, that will be again in the, in the context of uh, the Ebola outbreak uh, a bit, and uh, the need for automated system and toolbox because you want to achieve this sort of rapid uh, aspect of the response. So we, we, we've heard a bit about the uh, way of collecting data. That is, uh, it would have been a huge improvement to have it like from the beginning because uh, those kind of things are very difficult. Um, so from, from our side, like working, uh, working in Imperial, during the busiest period, we were reporting on a more or less bi-weekly basis and they wanted analysis, the same analysis to be redone with a new data set and, and also new questions that they wanted to be answered because the situation was evolving, question become different, but you still want to have the same basic knowledge. And so that, that become really difficult and you want automated system to be quick and reliable really because under a lot of pressure it's easy to make mistake and make wrong recommendation which would be terrible in this situation. And um, so we worked a, a fair amount on that. I can say that we had a fully automated system uh, in place but uh, basically we had a system where we received the uh, new data. Uh, we do a lot of data cleaning because most of the data had been uh, collected on paper form and then transcripted uh, 
into sort of Excel format and there would be a numerous error in it. And, and, and then do a lot of different analysis and finally end up with an automated report that would, could be shared then with um, health agency. So the whole process wasn't fully automated, but, but nearly, nearly. And, and, and it, it was quite helpful because we would have never managed to send as many reports if it wasn't for that. And so um, the idea now is to try to build on that because we want to be prepared for the future outbreak. So we have a colleague in, in Imperial working on this epidemic consortium, which is uh, a group of people that are uh, spread around the world with an interest in, in uh, rapid response to outbreak. So they're releasing packages that can be used by the um, whole community to make analysis on outbreak data, which hopefully will make us better prepared should, should another event like that happen. Because otherwise you need to sort of redevelop the wheel every time, which is, which is really inefficient and uh, yeah. <coughs> so another project that we are working on is uh, to map the risk of um, infectious disease spread. So it's again like relying on those kind of experience that we had during the Ebola outbreak, try to have tools that are already in place and try to develop this. Uh, in this one, we collaborate with numerous people to gather information on, say, incidents from uh, something called ProMed, that has a huge network of clinicians, uh, HealthMap, which helps them analyzing those data, uh, HealthSite, which is collecting data on uh, healthcare capacity. And so we, we're trying to use all those sort of data um, to put it inside a model and, and try to map the risk of disease spread. So you could imagine they were seeing some cases of uh, Ebola in Congo in a particular area, uh, you would make an assessment about the risk of it spreading to other region or other country. Obviously, if a, if a case appears in, in Sierra Leone, for example, or 10 cases in Sierra Leone, doesn't mean the same as 10 cases in Nigeria. Nigeria has a much better health system in place and is, it has been like, um, exposed to the virus a lot of times, so they are able to respond much quicker. So in a, in a way, we're trying to implement, gather all this information together. Um, I'll talk very briefly about uh, how modeling can be used for uh, evaluating and adjust the control. Uh, I think I'm just gonna present a, a one example in here, because I'm running a bit of, a of time. So um, again, real-time evaluation of interventions is something that is really hard to do, to be honest. Um, and so here we had a sort of simple assessment of, uh, say, increased contact tracing. I'm not sure that's what it really is. It's sort of increased uh, isolation time, really. So um, this is trying to relate the time it takes to isolate patient at a local level and, and the level of uh, local transmission. So uh, we've seen in the video that um, not only a lot of people had to travel long distance to go to the center, so sometimes it would take them days uh, to be able to be isolated, and during these times they would share contact and potentially transmit disease. Uh, in many cases as well, they wouldn't be able to enter, um, like, like, like we've seen the examples, they would, wouldn't be able to enter the, the center. So then um, they wouldn't be isolated and basically they can transmit more the disease in the, in the family. A lot of the transmission was within household. I mean, we've heard the story of uh, entire family being affected. 
So in, in, in this sort of analysis, we, uh, we gathered um, data on at the local level, so district level for each of the district industry country. We could gather data on what was the proportion of, uh, of cases that were hospitalized within four days. Uh, sadly enough, being hospitalized within four days in this situation is actually, you could define this as, as being pretty quick. Uh, that's four days after showing symptoms. And, and at the same time, um, using the same methodology as I showed you before, we could uh, estimate for each of those um, districts on a monthly basis the, what was the local transmissibility, so the reproduction number on this axis. And um, so the, there is a lot of color, each color is for a country. The size of the circle is related to the sample size really, but it's, that's, that's not too important at this stage. The, the important thing to, to take out, the take out message here is to say that the quicker, the greater the proportion of people that is hospitalized quickly, the lower the reproduction number is. So you have this really striking uh, downward trend here. Uh, interestingly enough, if, if nobody is hospitalized quickly, uh, you see that you end up with a basic reproduction number, which is well a, a good sanity check, I would say. Um, and, and, and here, I mean, uh, one of the key parts here that I, I would say from this graph is, so we want the reproduction number to be below one. So if you were drawing a line here, if, if you were achieving about 80%, so 80% of the cases, 80% of them were hospitalized and isolated within four days, basically you would be in a situation where you can consider control. So um, that's those kind of analysis in a sense that can give very concrete, uh, very concrete recommendation for WHO and on the ground. That is the target that you want to achieve. The same was done, for example, with, um, with the proportion of safe funeral. So there were a lot of issue and discussion about um, transmission happening during the funeral because of um, family touching the body and preparing the body. So if you have a safe funeral, you limit the transmission, and if 80% as well of the funeral were done safely, then uh, we would have expected the uh, epidemic to go down. So that provides a good target for control. Um, so the last bit was to look at retrospective evaluation. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go in detail with that, but it's, it's, it's to say that modeling can help as well retrospectively. So in this case, looking at potential impact of rapid diagnostics. So they weren't really rapid diagnostic developed at the time, but by the end of the outbreak, they were diagnostics that were very quick. So typically with the sort of PCR testing that is typically used, it takes, it was taking up to uh, sort of three days to get diagnosed, during which time you sort of sitting, you might be sitting in a hospital in a waiting sort of uh, area, and there is like people passing by, and you might be transmitting the virus. You might, you might, you might yourself. Ebola is not very specific in terms of symptoms. So, you know, people were coming with fever. It might be that they had malaria. If they go and wait three days in a waiting area, a lot of uh, Ebola patients are passing by, and they might, they might get sick themselves. So it's, it's really a real issue. Um, and so rapid diagnostic could help a lot in this case. And so we retrospectively sort of reanalyze the data and try to see what would have been the impact of rapid diagnostic. So I'm not going to go into the model here, 
but but basically this is a conclusion. So um, during the outbreak, PCR was used. It takes about three days to get a result. We fitted them, well fitted, we calibrated the model to the data and it corresponds pretty well. So the curve here in red is the model. The gray bar is the data, so it looks like it's fitting relatively well. Um, if we were, if we, if rapid diagnostic were available and, and used in a, in, in, in a good way, then uh, you could have end up with this uh, green curve here, uh, which may not appear so much, but you would have uh, decreased the total burden of the outbreak by a third. So, so it, it is, is a significant decrease. So it's a simple measure. And again, modeling can help in saying what we need to push to have those diagnostic, rapid diagnostic ready. And, and it can also push in how should they be used in the optimal way. Okay, so I'll just draw some conclusion. Um, I hope you've seen through the presentation that um, so model can be quite powerful um, in integrating multiple sources of information. So you don't need necessarily to have all the information, but you can sort of put everything in a current manner. So you can build a sort of narrative in the model in some way, and then and then help you like keep all the pieces together. That's what the modeling is doing. Um, I'd like to think that it's becoming some kind of a standard tool to advise stakeholders and uh, actors of the public health response also. Um, that's maybe debatable. Um, there is a lot of um, existing methodology. Um, so you can deal with a lot of phase of the outbreak, like from emergence from to, 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 to a time where the, the disease is endemic, so it's like established for a long time. Um, you can deal with a lot of um, data streams. And, um, and so efforts are ongoing in, in terms of developing those modeling methodology because uh, I think they're quite useful, but uh, clearly preparedness uh, must improve, but we, we're working in that direction, I guess. And um, lastly, I'd like to thank you and, and thank the whole team that work. I mean, that's some of the people that work, obviously, there'd be a lot more people. Um, so people in Imperial and also You can find out more about the RSS and how to become a member by visiting our website at www.rss.org.uk.